So please open your Bibles to Colossians 3 as well as, as, as Ephesians 5. And so we're going to be in both passages. And the reason is, is because what the Apostle Paul states in Ephesians 3, he more fully unpacks, or excuse me, in Colossians 3, he more fully unpacks in Ephesians 5. And so we're, even though our series has been anchored in Colossians 3, we're actually going to spend a little bit more time in Ephesians 5 this morning. Christianity teaches that human history begins and ends a wedding. In Genesis 2, we see that first wedding where God brings Eve to Adam and he presents her as his bride. And we see the foundation of human marriage that sets the trajectory for the rest of human history. And then in Revelation 19, we read that history will end with a great joy and celebration as God officiates an even greater wedding between Christ and his bride As Revelation 19 says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. Marriage is a deeply profound and important and beautiful social and spiritual reality. Healthy marriages are vital to families and to children and to churches and to local communities and even the nation. Marriage is also a place of deep, deep brokenness and hurt. While all marriages are going to experience sin and and conflict in some ways because we're all sinners, so many marriages, sadly, experience dysfunction and selfishness and anger and neglect and distrust and codependency and abuse and divorce and adultery and emotional affairs, and it wrecks lives and it wrecks families and it wrecks communities. We also live in a society that has done violence to the institution of marriage by reshaping and reforming its meaning and its boundaries. And the expressive individualism that is sort of the air we breathe as a culture has become so bad that the selfishness and the commitment phobia has caused the marriage rates in our society to be the lowest that they have ever been. Now look, I'm not saying everybody should get married or needs to get married. But a healthy society cannot function if there are not healthy marriages. And so here towards the end of the chapter in Colossians 3, the focus begins a little bit more uh, on specific relationships and how the gospel reforms these relationships. And so as we enter into this home stretch of Colossians 3 in our Relationships Reform series, we're going to take time to specifically look at some particular relationships that are important in our lives. And so it's fitting, considering how foundational important marriage is, that it would come up in a series on relational reformation. But if I can be honest... This sermon has weighed heavy on my heart for a couple weeks now. I I have sort of dreaded this Sunday because trying to preach on marriage, especially just sort of one sermon and and kind of move on, is an incredibly overwhelming task. Like There are so many things to say about marriage. There are so many good things that I want to say and feel burdened to say, but I can't say them all this morning. We'd be here forever. And here's the other piece of this. I know in this room, there are many who come in this morning and your marriage has wounds, has hurts, has sins, has pains, has frustrations. Maybe you come here this morning and you feel hopeless about your marriage. And I'm burdened because there are so many things I want to say to you and so many good things that you need to hear and be good for you to hear. But I can't say them all. 
And so feeling overwhelmed for the past two weeks, I, I confessed this to staff last Monday. I've confessed this to my wife. I confessed this to Pastor Paul. I really didn't want to preach this sermon. The perfectionist in me wants to do it perfectly, but here we are. <laughs> but at the same time, jumping into God's word has, has calmed me a bit, has, has settled me down because the passages this morning, they remind us of what's essential. They remind us of what matters most in marriage. Look, we could have all of the wise counsel, biblical counsel, all the best uh, self-help, all, all, the, all the best steps, all the best books, all the best resources to help our marriages, and those things are good. But if these things are not foundational in how we understand marriage and how we live as husbands and wives, then all of that counsel will be for nothing. We will not experience the full power of the gospel reforming and reshaping our marriages. And so we need these essential truths to anchor our marriage. So here's the main point for us this morning. Marriages are reformed by the gospel as they image the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriages are reformed by the gospel as they image the relationship between Christ and his church. And so I want to unpack uh, this statement for us walking through Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And so I want to focus on the Ephesians 5 passage, but I actually want to start at the end and then work back to the beginning. And so what we see in Ephesians 5 is that Paul's exhortation to wives and husbands builds to the central climactic truth that informs the way, that informs the instructions that he gives to husbands and wives. And so maybe another way to put it is he first starts with the what, and then he comes to the why. But for the sake of this morning and instruction, I want to start with Paul's why and then move back to the what, he says, to husbands and wives. And so why does Paul say what he says to wives and husbands? Why does he tell wives to submit to their husbands? Why does he use the imagery of a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church? Why are husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Why is this the imagery the Apostle Paul uses to talk about marriage? Well, as Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 tell us, what marriage ultimately points to, what its meaning is ultimately fulfilled by, is something deep and profound. This is what he writes. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Why does Paul use the imagery that he does? Why does he give the instruction that he does? Because marriage, for all that it is, ultimately points to Christ and the church. Well, whatever else marriage is, and it is deep, and it is profound, and it is meaningful, ultimately what it is about is pointing to the gospel, pointing to Christ and his church. So in verse 31, Paul is quoting from Genesis, 20, or Genesis 2, 24, and this, is, this statement comes at the end of that first wedding. And so if you're familiar with the story in Genesis 2, after God creates Adam, the first man, he brings all the creatures before Adam, and Adam is naming them. And as he does, here, here's what the text sort of gives the impression, is that there's this disappointment from Adam, because it's like, this one is not like me. This creature is not like me. This isn't the one that I can have deep uh, connection to. And so it leads God to say, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? He puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he takes out a rib, and from that rib, he fashions Eve, and he presents Eve to Adam as his bride. And when Adam sees Eve, this is what he declares. There she is. She is like me. 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Here is the one that I can have deep, intimate relationship with. Here is the one that is going to join me on the mission of God to be fruitful and multiply and spread the glory of God throughout the earth. And Genesis 2.24 captures the essence of this relationship, captures the marriage relationship. Far from being casual, marriage is a binding covenant. The word joined in the original Hebrew literally means glued together, bound together inseparably. And so marriage is to be an unbreakable bond between a husband and a wife. And look, in the society that is shot through with expressive individualism, marriage as covenant is really, in many ways, the last way that people think about marriage and the way they live marriage. We, we see people who treat marriage more about, hey, this is my, about my happiness and my fulfillment. And I live from and live in my marriage from a feeling of love rather than a love that binds itself in unbreakable commitment that's far greater than mere feeling. That the love committed in covenant is a love that serves and sacrifices. It's a love that is sustained through the greatest trials and pains and suffering. It doesn't give up, let go, or move on. And because of such covenantal love, marriage is also a place of great mercy and grace and joy and peace and friendship and safety and fulfillment. The covenant of marriage sets the foundation on which the deepest of relationships can, ex- can be experienced. And it sets a foundation for human flourishing. Also, far from a superficial and shallow relationship, in marriage, husband and wife become one flesh, which speaks to the deepest intimacy, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Look, a man is going to leave his father and mother. He's going to leave that relationship that used to be the deepest one that he could experience, and he's going to bind himself in one flesh to a new union, and that relationship is going to be the deepest and most significant for his life. Look, your spouse isn't just your buddy. Hey, look, friendship and marriage is huge. It's important, but your spouse isn't just your buddy. Your spouse isn't just someone you sleep with or a roommate or someone that you just co-labor with for the responsibilities of life. No, your spouse is the human relationship in which you have the deepest of connection and intimacy. The The marriage bond is so strong that husbands and wives, your bodies are no longer considered your own. You're one flesh. Your bodies are each other. They belong to each other. You belong to each other in the most intimate of ways, which speaks to how precious this relationship should be, how honored, how sacred, how close the intimacy and the trust and the communication. There's to be no part of your life that is sort of withheld from your marriage. The marriage relationship is like no other human relationship. And this foundation and essence of marriage established in Genesis 2 sets the trajectory for human marriage throughout all history. And for all the greatness and all the glory of what that is and what it represents, as Paul reveals in Ephesians 5.32, the statement in Genesis 2.24 actually finds its ultimate meaning and ultimate fulfillment, not in human marriage, but in the relationship between Christ and his church. The marriage covenant so strong between husband and wife actually points to an even greater covenant. The, the, the one flesh, the, the union 
of husband and wife so intimate and so deep actually points to an even greater union, the union Christ has with his people. And so, because here, friends, while human love and human covenant can be powerful and can be wonderful and beautiful, even the best version is shot through with sin. Even the best version is flawed. And so Christ comes and he commits himself to his people, commits himself to his bride with, an imper- with a perfect love, a perfectly unbreakable love, a perfect sacrificial love that rescues and redeems from sin and corruption, a, a love that perfectly holds you that- and will sustain you through the deepest and darkest trials and pains and sin and suffering. A love that never lets go, that never gives up and never moves on, even when our feelings are fleeting and even when we're entangled in our sin. We experience in this covenantal love of Christ the fullness of grace and mercy and joy and friendship and fulfillment and safety. And friends, in creating a covenant between himself and his people, Christ pulls us into the most intimate relationship by the Spirit. We are united to him where now our life is in him and his life is in ours. His life, his spirit, his resurrection power now in us. And here is the wonderful glory. When Christ does all of this for us, his bride, how do we, his bride, respond? There's our beloved There's our beloved who has come and rescued us and saved us and laid down his life for us. In praise and worship, we glorify our great husband. This relationship, this covenant is what our marriage points to. This glorious covenant-keeping husband who is Jesus Christ and the bride that he has saved, us, his church, and the intimacy and the love, and the delight, that is what our marriages are point to point to. The relationship Christ has with his church in many ways, friends, is really deep and profound and hard to fully grasp. Like if you were to meditate on your union with Christ, we don't quite grasp all that it means. It's so wonderful for us that we can't grab it. And so what God has done is he said, let me establish a human relationship where you can kind of get it. We can kind of see just how deep and how powerful and how meaningful this is. And so he gives us in our marriages that very thing. But it also works the other way. As we think about what it means to be covenantally connected to a husband, as husbands and wives, we think about what is to define that love, define that covenant, define that sacrifice and service, define that structure. We see, oh, how Christ loves his church, how Christ and the church relate to one another. That's what's to define our marriages. That is what defines how we view being married. And so your marriage is a place where gospel power is lived out and a place where gospel proclamation happens. You live as husbands and wife with the power of the Holy Spirit and giving you the ability to love and to serve one another. And as you do that, what do you declare? The glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here's what we need to recognize before we talk about the what. All of this being true, that our marriages are ultimately to point to Christ in the church, we need to understand that we don't properly recognize the structure of marriage until we understand what it points to. And here's what we do as Christians sometimes 
to our detriment. We talk about the structure of marriage, and so we'll say things like, hey, God's word says wives are to submit, and husbands are the leaders, and that is how he has structured marriage and the natural order. True. That is absolutely true, and we need to uphold that and champion that. But what we do is we leave it there. We, we sort of think structure for structure's sake. When we miss the fact the structure is there to point to something greater, and so the way we live in the structure, the way that structure is defined is to be defined by Christ and his love for the church because look, your marriage will end. Your marriage is going to end. When we are in glory, we will not be married. But guess what? Covenant won't end. The covenant Christ has with his bride. That marriage is going to be eternal. That relationship will be eternal. And so our, the structure of our marriage, as great and glorious as that is, points to something even greater. And husbands, wives, we have to not forget this. When we think about what it means to be married and all that that entails and all the questions and all the challenges and all the struggles, ultimately it comes down to this. Your marriage is meant to point to Christ and his church, to declare the gospel. And that is beautiful that is powerful, that, is, that gives your marriage something far bigger than just you two. And so that is the what, and that is the, 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 or excuse me, the why that comes at the end of this passage. Now let's take that why, and in light of that why, let's move back to the what. Putting the gospel on display, imaging and pointing to the relationship between Christ and his church happens as both wife and husband walk out their call and role in marriage. And in both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, we see the larger contours of these roles. First to the wives, Paul writes this. Colossians, in Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then in Ephesians 5.22-24, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. That word submit is pretty much a four-letter word in our culture. We don't like to hear that word. Our culture hates that word. Because here's what our culture hears when they hear the word submit. They hear, hey, wives, you're to be doormats. Oh, wives, the only thing that matters is your hus- what your husband wants and needs. Wives, you are lesser in value and worth. Wives, your husband tells you what to do, and that's the end of it. And look, we need to be honest, church, that at times the church has said things like that. They've taken this passage and they have applied it in such a way where the woman is put under the foot of the man in order to hold up some kind of structure. And so when we talk about submission, we need to, we need to clarify a few things here. First, submission isn't first a woman thing. It's a disciple of Jesus thing. Submitting to leadership, authority, and other people is not negative. It's very much a good thing. And look, when you consider the passage in Ephesians in its broader context, here's what we learn. Right before Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, he says this to the entire church. Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. You know what an overflow of being filled with the spirits and having a robust worship culture is? We submit to one another. We don't do the Lone Ranger thing. We don't say, it's just me and Jesus, I got that. No, we come into community and we let others speak truth to us. We submit to their correction, submit to their leadership, 
And so for Christians, a culture of submission and humility is not anything new. It's something we're all called to. Also, the life and example of Jesus calls us to, po- to a posture of humility, whereby we humble ourselves and serve others. As Philippians 2, te- Philippians 2 tells us, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Jesus Christ, God the Son, humbled himself and submitted to his Father's will, and he served us. And that submission, that humility, was redemptive. It brought about salvation. Far from being a negative thing like our culture wants to tell you, submission is a powerful thing. It is a powerfully transformative thing. Through submission we are, of Christ, we are saved. And in, in in now we have this call on our lives to walk as Jesus walked and to humble ourselves and to submit ourselves one to another. And so wives, hear me clearly on this. Your call to submit to your husband is not first about you being a woman. It's about you being a disciple of Jesus. The other thing we need to clarify is that the problem is not that God has created the structure wherein men lead and women are to submit and support that leadership. The problem is not the structure. The problem is that sin has entered into it. Sin has entered into it and it has corrupted it. See, when God created marriage, the relationship was intended to be a source of joy and unity and peace and vulnerability and partnership and flourishing and service. And when sin entered the picture... When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, this is where the conflict and the selfishness and the pride and the fear and the undermining and the domineering and the anger and the passivity and the self-protection took place. And so when the gospel reforms our marriage, it doesn't reform submission out of the equation. It reforms sin out of the equation. And so with those two important clarifications, wives, You specifically exercise the Christian virtue of humility. You put the gospel on display, imaging and pointing to the relationship between Christ and his church as you submit to your husband's headship or leadership. And this verb submit in, in, well, let me say this first. I'm not going to go into a deep dive on headship. We're going to get there this fall when we go through 1 Corinthians 11. Um, So just understanding that headship here means leadership. And the verb to submit in both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 is in the middle voice in the Greek. Isn't that cool? I'm sure that helps you understand a lot. (laughs) Here's what that means. It means that the submission that a wife does is one of her own volition. It's one that she voluntarily chooses to enter into. It's not one where the man puts his foot on her neck and says, you submit to me, woman. It's not one where she's manipulated and abused into submission. It's not one where the wife is shamed and guilted into it. Rather, the wife as a daughter of God, believing that her father is good and has created this structure to put on the glorious display of his son and his bride, enters in and says, yes, I'm gonna submit to my husband to the glory of God. It is taking your gifting and your mind and your voice and saying, I am going to enter into this marriage relationship and I am gonna be behind my husband's leadership. Because here is the absolute truth, wives, You are not nice to have. You are necessary. You are absolutely essential. 
Your husband needs you. He may not always see that, but he needs you. Your role is not nice to have, but necessary. And why do I say that? Well, when we go back to Genesis, when God creates Eve to be Adam's helper, the word helper there is important, very important. Because you can read that word helper kind of derogatory. Mommy's little helper. Santa's little helper. It's kind of this diminished role. Like you're just kind of this, this sidekick. But the word in the Hebrew is the word etzer. And this word doesn't denote weakness, but strength. This is the very word that is used of God in Exodus and Deuteronomy and in the Psalms and Hosea as the helper of Israel. The Lord isn't some weak helper. He is a strong helper. And so the word helper there, if you want a, if you want a better word to kind of understand the full meaning of it, think of the word ally, necessary ally. I love the way John McKinley unpacks this word etzer for us. Just as etzer tells of God's relatedness to Israel as the necessary support for their survival and military perils, the woman is the ally to the man without which he cannot succeed or survive. Unlike the helper, that could seem optional and allow the man to think he's otherwise adequate for the task without the woman. The distinction of ally marks the man's dependence upon her contribution. This dependence is plain when we consider Israel's need for God's contribution as her ally. What sort of ally is the woman to the man? She's a necessary ally, the sort without which he cannot fulfill humanity's mission. Wives, your role is not second class. Submission is not powerlessness, it's great power. You're absolutely necessary. Think of this, men and women, but men, when God said it's not good for man to be alone, what did he give you? A bro? No, gave you a wife. (laughs) Gave us women. And so recognizing the role of a wife in your submission, it is a powerful position. It is a necessary position. It is good And you glorify God as you step into this role as ally, as you submit to your husband's leadership. And so wives, are you your husband's necessary ally, submitting and supporting his leadership? Are you encouraging and following him and helping him lead as God calls you to? And look, I don't doubt submission is hard. I know it's hard. Like I think of the knucklehead that I am and my wife has to submit to this, She's a rock star for having to submit to this. I know it is not difficult, but, or it is difficult, but what is the posture of your heart? It is the posture of your heart as a necessary ally who sees good in submitting and supporting the leadership of your husband or in the midst of the pain and the, the struggle, do you say, this is too messy and frustrating, so I'm just gonna go it alone? Do you have a heart that wants to put on display the power of Christ and the power of the gospel? Or is the sin and the mess and the pain going to define how you are in relationship with your husband? Let me also ask, are you letting your husband lead? Are you letting him lead? Are you submitting to his leadership? Are you listening to his counsel, listening to his wisdom? Are you following the direction that he is leading in your family? And again, I know your husband may be, is, is broken and I know your husband has sin, but are you letting him lead? When your husband sins, fails, and struggles, does he experience you as a powerful etzer 
Or does he experience criticism and condemnation that makes him wish he was alone? In your husband's imperfect leadership, are you championing him and cheering him on? Even when you have to rebuke him, even when you have to lovingly correct him because he's in sin, are you calling him more and more into that role as the head and as the leader? Are you behind him and supporting him? Or are you biting and bitter, grabbing for control and saying, I'm going to do this on my own? Are you using your gifting and your energy and your intelligence and all that you are in all the fearful and beautiful ways God has made you? Are you using your voice to see your husband thrive as a leader? Are you taking your husband to Christ? The true husband who died for his sins and who is at work in his life? Are you reminding him of Christ? Are you pointing him to Jesus? Wives, that's what it means to be an etzer. That's what it means to be a necessary ally. That's what it means to, to use your submission to glorify Christ. Also, wives, are you delighting in your husbands? Are you delighting? Because that, that, that's the beautiful depth that, that this relationship between Christ and the church brings to our marriage is the, this depth of delight. Christ delights in his bride and his bride delights in her husband. And so are you like, that's my man. That's the one that I love. That's the one that I committed myself to. That's the one that God is at work in and I see what he can be through the Holy Spirit and I'm for him because God is for him and I'm cheering him on and I'm behind him. Do you delight in your husband? This is why covenant is so important in marriage because look, only covenant sustains this. Only covenant can hold because this is messy. This is hard. This requires the Holy Spirit. But when you make a covenant with your spouse, when you make a covenant before God and you let that covenant that Christ has made with his church sustain you and hold you, then the power of the Spirit will work in your marriage. And guess what, wives? God will use you and your marriage will model Christ in his church and display the gospel. And as the wife is called to submission, so too does the husband have a calling. Husbands, Use your headship to rule over your wife and put them in submission to you. Oh, that's not what it says, is it? Husbands, remind your wife that you are the head and she needs to listen to you in everything that you do. Oh, no, that's not what it says either. Husbands, love your wives. There it is. And don't be bitter toward them. Then in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. How did Jesus use his authority? How did Jesus use his headship? To love, to serve, to sacrifice, to give himself that his bride might be rescued and redeemed and might flourish how does God's word call you? What's the first step, men, when God is calling you to use your headship and your authority? Love. Love your bride. Love your wife. And so, husbands, how are you using your headship? How are you using your leadership? To love your wife? Are you following the example of Christ that he has laid before you? Are you using your leadership? Are you using your position 
to serve and to sacrifice and give yourself for your bride. Because the result of Christ's submission is salvation and the result, or excuse me, the result of Christ using his headship is salvation and the result of you using your authority and leadership is your wife thriving in Jesus. Husbands, are you using your leadership that your wife may flourish? Are you serving and sacrificing so that your wife can know the love of Christ in greater ways? Under your leadership, is your wife more faith-filled and joy-filled and love-filled and peace-filled? Is she growing in compassion and kindness and patience and gentleness and love and forgiveness? Under your leadership, does she say, I love Jesus more, I have more joy in Christ because of the way my husband leads me? Or are you discouraging her, crushing her, weakening her faith and her joy in Jesus? Men, are you willingly entering into your wife's sin and mess and pain? Are you willing, willingly stepping into those broken and dark parts of her? Or are you criticizing and getting angry and frustrated? Do you go to anger and bitterness? Or do you just withdraw, withdraw and escape? It's sort of this running cultural joke that the husband, sort of overwhelmed with his wife, this my wife is too much for me, decides that he's just going to run away. He's going to escape. He's going to hang out with his buddies. And here's the temptation, men. When, when you follow the lead of Christ and you decide you're going to step into your wife's sin and her mess and her pain and her suffering, it's going to feel overwhelming. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. And here's the voices that you will hear. You'll hear this voice at times. Oh, you deserve to be angry at her. How dare she talk to you like that? How dare she challenge your authority. She's not submitting. Put her in her place. Or maybe you'll hear this voice. You know what? Too much. You don't need to deal with that. Let's go. Let's go hang out with our buddies. Let's escape into entertainment. Let's escape into alcohol. Let's escape into pornography. Let's get out of here. You deserve some fun time. You use some you time. Or maybe you'll hear this voice. You know what? You are the problem. Look at how you have failed Look at how you have messed up your marriage. And so your wife should lead. She could probably be better than you. And so you should let her. Brothers, if you hear any of those voices, let me tell you right now, that is the lie from the enemy. That is not God's spirit. That is not God's word. Do not listen to those lies. Do not listen to those words. The love that Christ calls you to, the way you're called to use your leadership is not a love that runs to anger, and bitterness, and it is not a love that escapes and runs. So it, it's been a few years since I've used uh, an illustration from the TV show, This Is Us. <laughs> Those of you that have been around for a city for several years know that I, I was dipping into This Is Us like regularly, like in 2018. <laughs> but it's hard for me not to talk about this subject without bringing up one of my favorite scenes in the show from season one. So if you're familiar with the show, you might remember the, the episode where um, Jack has kind of run from his wife. His wife is pregnant with twins and she is an emotional mess and they get into this fight and Jack is like, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, this is too much. And so he goes golfing with his buddies and he's hanging out with them and his buddies are, are talking and they're laughing and joking about how golf is their escape. Sorry. And as Jack is listening to him just talk about this, he looks at him and he says this, I keep thinking about my wife and how I want to get home and see to, to her. 
and make sure she's okay. Which is crazy because she's at her worst right now, like exorcist level bad. But I still don't want to escape her. That, friends, that, brothers, that's the love Christ calls you to. In your mess, in your darkness, in your sin, in your pain, in your suffering, Christ didn't escape you. He came to you. And look, you're not your wife's savior, but you are an instrument of his grace. You're an instrument of his love and his mercy. And so he calls you to step in to that pain and that sin and that suffering and love your wife and speak truth to her and serve her. Even if she can be difficult, by the power of the spirit, you can draw near and be present. And look, to whatever degree you've contributed to the problem and need to own it, own it. But don't let shame own you. There is grace for your sin. There is forgiveness and there is renewal for your sin. You, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can own what you need to own and step in and say, honey, I love you. And by the grace of God, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead us through this. And I'm going to lead you and love you so that your faith in Jesus grows. Your joy in Jesus grows. And that together, our marriage can glorify Christ. And men, do you delight in your bride? Do you delight in her as Jesus delights in his bride? Do you look at her and go, that's my girl. That's the one that I committed myself to. That's the one I love because Christ loves her. And I see what God is up to in her. And I celebrate and I rejoice in that. Men, delight in your bride because that is where this is all heading. That is what ultimately Christ and, and his church experience is delight. This is why covenant matters. This is why covenant matters because it is only in the context of covenant can this happen. Can the grace of God sustain two people, two broken, messed up, sinful people and transform and reform them in order that their lives can put on display Christ in his church. Can you imagine that? How incredible that is? That you and I and all our mess and all of our, the ways we muck this up, God still says, you can show, put on display my son and his bride. That's the hope that is held out for us. And so friends, look, I know for some of you, your marriage is in a hard place, painful place. It's not easy. A lot of pain, a lot of challenges, a lot of sin, a lot of suffering. And I know some of you struggle with guilt and shame. You feel like you've blown it and there's no hope. But here's the truth for you. Here's, here's the grace that is held out for you this morning. Through Jesus Christ, there's hope. Through Jesus Christ, your marriage can be transformed and renewed. If you will humble yourself before Christ and turn from your sin and turn from your pride and turn from doing it on your own and turn to Christ and his grace and trust in him and depend upon him, and also as you do this with other people. You need the church. In the context of these passages, Paul is speaking to married couples that are in the context of the church. You can't do this alone, just you and your spouse. You need your brothers and sisters. You need community. And so be present here. Be committed here. Be a part of this community and live your life open so you can receive the grace of community and the love of community because I know there are brothers and sisters who want to love you who want to support you, who want to rally and fight with you for your marriage. 
And so let's do this together. Let us commit to being a church community that champions the beauty and power of marriage. But more than that, let our marriages put on display the power of the gospel and declare the great love Christ has for the church and how he's redeemed us. And let our marriages point to that marriage that one day is to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.